Get ready to rock. One of our most reviewed singer-songwriters at Get Ready to Rock is Eleanor McAvoy and a favourite of our genre editor, Pete Worley. We chatted to Eleanor shortly before her gig in Chester in October 2008 when she told us about the trials and tribulations of big label promotion in the 1990s, since which time she's been fiercely independent. And throughout the millennium, she's continued to make consistently fine albums, but on her own terms. And we're here in Chester on uh, a rather overcast Sunday afternoon. I've got uh, Eleanor McAvoy uh, next to me. She's playing at Alexander's uh, Jazz Theatre uh, later on this evening. Uh, a big warm get ready to rock welcome to you, Eleanor. Thanks very and welcome much. Welcome to Chester. Thanks a million. Pleasure to be here. Oh, and you have been here before, haven't you? I've You've been here a bunch of times, <laughs> yeah. It's such a great venue. You like the city and you like the venue, don't you? I love the city. Uh, I love the venue. It's kind of half outdoors, half indoors. It's got that jazz club feel to it. But, you know, you could have a rock band here as well. You, you know, it, it kind of does for everything. It's great. Yes, and you always, I can vouch for this, you always get a very warm response. Yeah, that's hope we do tonight. And I'm sure <laughs> we'll do later. Because you've got a new album out, and we'll, we'll come on and talk about that shortly. Um, and uh, you've been on tour. You, you, uh, what was the first date you did on the tour, then? On this tour? Yes, on um, this uh, Newcastle under Lyme. That's in the UK, is yeah, it? Obviously. it is, yeah, yeah. 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 Because, well, before that, now I had a load of Irish dates, and then I was in Germany before that, and then I was in Spain before that, a couple of weeks there, and then five so weeks. So you much travel recently. In Australia, yeah, yeah, just before that. Do you like the travelling, or does that get a bit of a bind after a while? Or? I love it, I love travelling, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, the, the one downside is you're away from friends and family. That's the only downside, really. Yes, um, yes. The rest of it's fantastic. But you, I suppose the adrenaline keeps you going, doesn't it, really? And does, do things get easier into the tour? Do you find that, say, halfway through a series of dates, you really settle into it? Uh, you know, at this stage, I settle in pretty much from word go because, to be honest, I've just been doing it so damn long. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of used to it. I know, I'm, like, I have packing down. I'm great at packing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I learned, I think the mistake some artists make when they start out in this is that they kind of postpone the rest of their life till they get back off tour. I kind of keep it going, I keep the phone calls up, I yes. text my friends every day, you know. Yeah. Um, it's just normal life, really. And this tour ends up in Glastonbury, doesn't it? You're playing the Glastonbury right. Festival. Yeah. Um, now, you have played that before, but it was a dim and distant memory, I believe. It is, yes. Quite a few years since I've done Glastonbury, but I'm delighted to be doing it again. It's great. It's one of the best ones, you know, it's fun. So, so how did that come about? I mean, were you approached to do that festival? Gosh, I don't actually know. <laughs> I have, you know, different yeah. booking agents in different territories and they look after all the dates because I, I couldn't just do it all. I mean, I guess when I started out, I used to book myself in each territory. But then you get to a certain level and you can't quite manage it anymore, so then you look for somebody to do it. Mm. Very exciting anyway, isn't it? It's because hopefully you'll get a bit of TV coverage yeah. as well. Well, with a bit of luck, yeah. yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, let's turn the clock right back now to the start, really, of your career. And uh, it's a very interesting story, really, Eleanor, that um, 
really starts back, I suppose, in the 80s, doesn't it? Is it? Am I right in saying all of the early 90s, really, to be more precise? Well, uh, it depends what you call my career, really. You know, I'm, I've been a musician, professional musician, kind of since I was about 17. Now, I was in college for four years, but I was working all that time as a musician. But it was as a session musician, you know, I was a violinist. and uh, So if you include that part, yeah, then I've had a very long career mm. <laughs> and varied. Um, but as far as the singer-songwriting thing went, I only really went public with that, if you like, around, I suppose, 87. 86, 87, I started coming out of my shell a bit. Mm. I'd always written songs, always. I just didn't, hadn't really told anybody. Um, I started telling a few people around then. <laughs> and then I guess it was only, like, really in the 1990s that I started putting up posters and... So what would you say was the first big break? You know, if you can look back on your career, and uh, often it's like being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. The usual story, isn't it, really? I, I, w- I was in can the right place. Yeah, yeah, I can pinpoint it. It was a Tuesday night in the Baggage Inn in Dublin, and uh, I was in the middle of a gig, and uh, at the end of the gig, a guy with very scruffy-looking guy, American accent, long hair, came up to me and said, uh, my name is Tom Zuta. I'm with Geffen Records in Los Angeles and I've signed Guns N' Roses, and he mentioned all these other huge bands, and he said, I'd like to sign you. Simple as that. Mm. Um, I thought he was a bit strange and a bit odd, and I kind of felt sorry for him, and I said, well, you sit down there now, and I had cake in the dressing room because it was my bass player's birthday, and I said, sit down there and have some cake. Very rock and roll, obviously. Very rock and roll. And I had actually some record companies there that night, you know, small Irish labels, well, Sony Music Ireland and a whole lot of Irish labels. And I said, I have to talk to these men over here now. You just sit down and have a cup of tea and a, and a cake, a bit of cake. <laughs> and I went off to talk to some of the others. And uh, John Sheehan, who was the head of Sony Music in Ireland at the time, said, uh, in fairness to him, he said, he's actually very important, Eleanor. You should probably go talk to him, <laughs> which I'm very grateful to him for. I said, really? And he said, yeah. So uh, I went to talk to him, and uh, I arranged to meet him the following day in a, in, a, in a hotel. And I did my homework overnight. In the middle of the night, I was phoning a friend of mine who worked for Virgin Records in London. He said, what? Tom Zuto was at your gig in Dublin? And yeah, he was who he said he was, and he signed me. Actually, a very funny time when there was a guy in the suit, very respectable-looking guy. I thought, he looks like a record company guy. Who's he? And somebody said, he's, he's the American's driver. He's Tom's driver, you know? <laughs> he was the chauffeur driver. So... Uh, so that, yeah. was, that was momentous, really. That was it? an yeah. international record contract with Geffen Records, and that took me all around the world to, you know, Taiwan, Singapore, <laughs> all over America. So, so where does Only Woman's Heart fit into all that? Did that predate the... That happened the three thing? days later. Three the days same later. week. Mm-hmm. It was happening. It all happened. Two extraordinary things. A Woman's Heart was released, I think, on the Wednesday. It must have been the next day it was released, or maybe a couple of days beforehand. But, like, it was just a song that was going to radio. Nobody knew that it was, you know... Uh, when I recorded the song, uh, Mary Black's husband, Joe O'Reilly, who owned the record company, said to me, God, you know, we could sell... We could, this could sell 3,000 copies. That was kind of, wow, you know, we know for play our cards right here, could sell 3,000 copies. Um, and it really wasn't evident. People thought that it came out and it went huge immediately. It didn't. It was just being played a lot on the radio. Simple as that. But lots of songs get played on Irish radio for a short period of time and then fade into insignificance. But it just kept growing and growing and growing. And within a matter of months, we realised, no, this is actually huge. Um, so did that appear on another album, did it, of, of the, with Mary Black? What happened was that Mary Black came to my gig one night with her husband, Joe. Uh, I, I was her keyboard player at the time. I did backing vocals in her band and a bit of violin and a bit of keyboards. And she just socially, they came to my gig, one of my own gigs. 
and uh, Joe her husband heard the song A Woman's Heart and he rang me up the next day and said that song you did last night I have an, an idea to put together you know an album of six Irish women and uh, we're going to use two tracks from each of them that have already been recorded like that they already have out on previous albums but you've never had an album so how would you feel about recording two of them and how would you feel about you know doing a duet with Mary on Woman's Heart so I said yeah for grace yeah and uh that's how that happened, you yeah. know. And it became a massive success. It did, it? yeah. It features on your debut album, doesn't it, in 1993? It did, yeah. Yeah, which is just simply called Eleanor McAvoy. Now tell us, um, uh, Eleanor, how did you get signed to uh, Sony? That was through the, the guy coming to the gig, really. That, it went on from there, didn't it, this uh, chap you were talking about from Geffen? Well, yeah, I got uh, signed to Geffen Records in my, my first album with Geffen Records, and uh, that was an extraordinary time in my life. No doubt about it. Um, Geffen was an unusual company in that it was A&R driven. Most companies are not, you know, don't have the A&R people at the top. But David Geffen had this idea to have uh, a more creative company, if you like. However, my A&R man uh, started, there was a bit of falling out between himself and the company um, around about the time I was to do the second album. So I recorded a second album and I had it in the bag. Um, and then Tom spit with the company. So I was in the horrible position that every artist hates being in when you're signed to a company and your A&R man has left. There is nothing worse. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, bands keep talking about how dreadful it is to be dropped. And I always say to them, you know, you're dropped, you're lucky, because you're free. And, you know, if you've confidence in your songs and your talent, you know, you, there's nothing better you can wish for than mm. to be dropped. And at that stage, I was wishing to be dropped, and it wasn't happening for a while, and I was getting very depressed. Um, and finally, uh, because we were on good terms with Gaffin, they let us go under good circumstances. So I then was looking for another deal, and uh, I was talking with Capitol Records and Columbia Records, uh, and I eventually went to Columbia. Oh, right. And that uh, led to the making of the next album. Now, did uh, Sony introduce something of a commercial gloss to your music which you perhaps found difficult to um, I mean I suggest mm. that, I'm not saying that was the case uh, because sometimes when a, a record company like Sony gets hold yeah. of an artist they want to put a bit of a, a commercial sheen on things were you conscious of that at all at the time? Um, not really I mean I was actually very lucky in, in fairness to both of the companies get both Geffen and Columbia I mean, they drove me mad in other ways, don't, don't you know? <laughs> but uh, they left me largely to my own devices. And the two A&R people I had, originally, you know, Tom Zuta and then Mitchell Cohn at Columbia, uh, which is owned by Sony, of course, uh, they were very good artistically with me. They pretty much let me do what I want. Um, so, no, I have to say that anything that you don't like on those albums, it's, just, it's really down to me or the producer at the time. So you weren't under any pressure at all? I wasn't under any no, pressure, no. no I, I, and I, I'm lucky and I'm kind of mm. grateful for that. Mm. Um, I mean, it sometimes be a bit sort of, they want something on the cover and they'd, you know, we'd have a rouse over little stuff like that. But, and there was once, I mean, there was an edit they wanted to make in a single and I got uh, very stroppy about that and we fell out for a little while. But that's very small potatoes compared to what a lot of yeah, artists go through. In the grand through. scheme of things, yeah. Because really. I have to say, uh, it, during that period, you seem to have had a little bit of a sort of a punky, almost like goth image. Was, yeah. that, was that just you at the time, really? That was me at the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, I have to feel sorry for them in some ways because, you know... I'm in this for the music, I really am, and that's what keeps me passionate. 
And unfortunately, I go from one form of music to another. You know, I, I was at it there, you know, seven months ago. I got into Cajun fiddle playing, and thank God it just wasn't time to make an album when I was going through that phase, because I got obsessed with it, and I was downloading from iTunes everything Cajun I could find, and, you know, buying out record shops of Cajun fiddle players, and, um, and then I got it out of my system. <laughs> and I was fine. So, yeah, that was the Vox AC30 stage with the, the, the right. Telecaster guitar and the nose ring. And, you know, and that was really what I was into. And the big guitar solos and brought my brother in on guitar because he was great. Big. He did these big, huge guitar solos, which I loved and thought was the bee's knees. Um, and that was fine with Columbia. That was grand with them. That, they were well up for that. We got on like a house on fire. However, <laughs> when it came to make the third album, they were expecting more of the same. And they hadn't realized that I'd gone in a whole different area. I had discovered hip-hop, and I had discovered drum loops and drum machines and, and you know, sequencers. And I thought, wow, <laughs> forget about the AC-30 and the electric guitar. Look at this. This is so cool. So uh, unbeknownst to them, I went about my merry way. And because they kind of trusted me as an artist, and I hooked up with uh, Rupert Hine to produce it because they trusted Rupert as a producer, I think they just thought, yeah, no, she'll be fine. She'll just you know, do more of the same. Um, but of course, we produced this album at the end, uh, Snapshots, which was completely different from what's following me. And uh, I loved that album. I still love that album. To this day, it's one of my favorite albums of mine. You know, it, it, And uh, Rupert was really happy. Everybody's happy. But we delivered it to uh, you know, Columbia Records at 550 Madison Avenue, big skyscraper. You go in with your tapes, and they almost died. They almost died, you know. This is not what they've been looking for, and um, they had me marketed in a certain way, and they'd spent a lot of money on marketing me in a certain light, and uh, I'd gone and changed direction on them. Let's hear a track from that album then, released in 1999, from Snapshots. Uh, and the track you've actually selected, uh, Eleanor, is Please Heart, You're Killing Me. What's, what's the story behind that song? Well, up until this point in all the albums, I'd always written all my own songs, uh, and I'd never even co-written a song. But this was one of the first co-writes I ever did, and it was with the wonderful Rodney Crowell. I'd, I'd been a, a Rodney Crowell fan for some time prior to that, um, and I got the opportunity to write with him. And I loved the song so much I put it on the album. Cafe windows, street lamps, neon lights ablaze to shine all over town. Now you told us about the, the deal with Sony. That was starting to unravel then after you delivered the snapshots album, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> well, it broke my heart when they didn't seem to want to promote it. They didn't want to put money into it. They and you know, in fairness, years later now I, I realise why. I can see why. At the time I was gutted. What were they thinking? This was the best album I'd ever done, you know. And that's when I realized that myself and a multinational record company were never really going to hit it off. They were never going to understand me. Um, and I was never really going to understand them. <laughs> um, so, again, I found myself in the position where I was on a label that I didn't want to be on. And I was contracted to do, I think, another four albums at that point, And I really didn't want to be. Um, so, again, you know, I, I thought about everything to try and get myself dropped. I thought about delivering demos of all kind of religious songs because I thought the one way to get for sure to get dropped you know uh, I was going to fuel rumours of drug taking but uh, I figured they'd probably consider that an asset or, so uh, I didn't do that 
But uh, in the end, we could, I, I got myself off the label. They basically dropped me, um, which was... So I was ecstatic about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it was yeah. I think it was 99 or yeah, 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, at that stage, I was looking around at other artists like Annie DeFranco, who were doing it themselves. And I was fascinated by that. And I thought, God, maybe I can do it myself. And I knew I'd learned a little bit over the course of those three albums about the music industry. And I thought, okay, let's try and get some people around me here. Um, and let's try and make a go of this independently. Now, just before we leave the Sony thing, you managed to get back the rights to your first album several years ago, that's Eleanor McAvoy. What about the other albums? So, the, the, the second one and Snapshots, is, has that been difficult? Uh, yeah, I can't get those two back at all. Um, the reason why I got the Geffen Records album back is because Sony actually bought that from Geffen in 1996, and they said that they were going to put it out, but instead they put it on a shelf in their skyscraper and... New York and uh, I mean I didn't have a copy myself I couldn't get a copy Geffen weren't allowed to sell it and Sony were refusing to to make it and you know not out of badness just out of not caring or who are you again are you the Irish one yeah kind of vaguely remember you you know that kind of thing so uh, got two lawyers on the case and a lot of money later and bought back that first album and uh, reissued it uh, with bonus tracks including some tracks I wasn't allowed to put on the first time around um, and we re- released that, and I'm, you know, selling it now. Because mm. they do seem to be a bit strange, Sony, don't they, in, in giving albums back to artists. I mean, I was speaking to uh, Steve Balsamo, who you might have heard of. He um, he sings with a band called The Stories, and he had a solo oh, yeah. album for Sony yeah. out in around about 2002, and for some reason they just handed it back to him. Do they? Strange. Oh. And uh, Tina Deco, someone else, the Danish singer-songwriter, and apparently she uh, had an album out... Um, recorded it for Sony and then was dropped, you know, just yeah. for whatever reason. But they did give it a back, so. Oh, <laughs> well, they're not doing it for me, I tell oh, you. Well, <laughs> well uh, yeah, keep on. I mean, do you think it'd be nice to get those albums back, really, because it's part of your earlier career? And as you say, Snapshots is a favourite, really, isn't it? It is, yeah. Mm. I, I'd love to have them back. I'd absolutely love to have them back. Mm. Okay, let's move on to uh, Yola, which really was the first milestone in your solo career. Mm-hmm. Uh, since around about 2000 and um, you've picked that out as one of your favourites I mean can you just describe to us Eleanor (laughs) the circumstances of making that album the terror (laughs) Um, well you know we were doing it independently uh, put all of our money into it you know loads of money and I did not want to come off a major label and make an album in my bedroom you know if I was going to make an album I wanted it to be better sound quality than the kind of sound quality you get in a major level. So I was really determined about that. So we spent a lot of money on the recording and, you know, doing it right. Um, went to a beautiful studio in Dublin, um, mixed it in Metropolis in London, you know, so that end of it was good. Uh, I, I'm always uh, confident or arrogant, maybe, enough of my sorry to know that the songs were, were, were well up to it. Um, and we recorded it. Uh, the other thing that had happened at the end of Snapshots is I'd broken my hand. And uh, I'd had to do a lot of physio, you know, and coming out of the sequences and the drum loops, uh, back playing acoustic piano and acoustic guitar again. I thought, God, I love acoustic guitar because I hadn't played acoustic guitar for years because I'd been going through the Telecaster electric phase. So I was, wow, acoustic guitar is so fantastic. Why don't I play more of this? So it made me go back to my acoustic roots. Um, Again, when I was touring Snapshots in America, having a broken hand, I couldn't play piano. I brought Brian Connor in to play piano for that tour. 
and he was such a wonderful pianist and I thought god this man is amazing let's me play acoustic guitar and him play piano and see how we get on so the album was based around myself and Brian really and the way we played and, and just doing things acoustically yeah. you're a violinist by training really aren't yes, you I think yeah, from yeah. Uh, your earlier education yeah I mean I played, that, played in an orchestra for five years that's now. right so that's something that again you've introduced into your act increasingly in recent years really isn't it the violin it is, yeah. Well, actually, I used to do it a lot at the beginning, and then I kind of stopped again when I broke the hand again. I was a bit, you know, slow coming back to it. But, uh, yeah, I'm doing it more and more, actually, and I'm enjoying it, you know. And one of the aspects of this, Eleanor, is the fact they're really well recorded. And uh, you've made great efforts to um, not only uh, make a really good recording, but release them on this SACD format. And you've had a lot of uh, great comments and great feedback from the Hi-Fi mags. Uh, is that something that you made a conscious decision about several years back? It was, yeah, because um, my partner, Mick O'Gorman, uh, is a sound designer. By, by that's, that's what he does for a living. So we, we were looking uh, to combine, in a way, what he did and what I did to make something really special. And we thought we could be uh, of great... That, that each of us could be of, of advantage to the other person, do you know what I mean? So uh, he would come up with ways of recording... Um, so that I could hear, you know, my own voice, the way I hear it myself. You know, so often when you're recording on Pro Tools, you know, you sing something into a microphone, you go into the other room and you listen and you think, that's not what I sang. <laughs> you know, that doesn't sound like me. Um, we wanted to make sure that we were getting really good sound qualities. We recorded on analog, two-inch tape, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. And that's what we did. And not only the audio quality, but it set the template for really the next album, Early Hours, because it was quite pared down, really, in format. Quite a direct and personal style, I think, that you introduced, which was extremely uh, popular amongst your fans and a wider listening audience. Um, and then a sort of a live pattern emerged as well, playing live gigs uh, up and down the country and wherever you were going. Um, and what emerged really was like a, a, a series of lower key gigs, sometimes in the back of pubs and hotels. How easy was it, Eleanor, for you to make that transition from perhaps bigger gigs, you know, in the, the 90s period, yeah. the late 90s, to that rather intimate atmosphere? And I'm sure you'll look back and say varying venues of different quality and size and yeah. all the rest of it. It's very easy. I mean, even when I was doing, you know, some of the bigger places, I always loved the smaller gigs. You know, I could tell you, like, when I was touring America, you know, the Tin Angel in Philadelphia, I, my eyes would light up when I'd see it on a schedule. It's, you know, it's a venue the size of this table. I mean, it's absolutely tiny. Um, once the sound system was good, I, I, I hate, and to this day, I hate doing gigs in somewhere where the sound system and the person doing the sound is bad. That, that, that will... I think it's every performance nightmare, really. It is, that? yeah. If you have a good sound system and, you know... Then it's down to what you do. <laughs> it's down to you then, you know. Um, so, yeah, I love playing smaller venues. And I love, uh, this is odd, but, you know, if you're Madonna <laughs> or you're the Rolling Stones or the Who, you play in big cities and other people travel from all around to come and see you. And, you know, a lot of these people, they bring their dressing rooms with them. They have the same couch that they had last night because they have a truck with the, the lamp on the couch and the carpet set up. And, you know, they... Everywhere they go, the dressing room is the same. You know, I was up in Rossbury the other night in the Scottish Borders. I'm going into other people's communities and I'm playing for them. And I get a flavour of what their life is like and I get a flavour of 
raspberry and I, today I have a flavour of Chester and I'm wandering around the shops and I read the local newspaper and it's a real privilege to go into other people's communities and see it their way and play for them. It also makes every gig completely different um, in a way that it's not when you're doing the bigger cities. Um, it's hard to describe but mm. it's a very pleasurable experience for me, I, I really enjoy it, I like it. It's nice to hear that really and I think from the audience point of view you're very approachable uh, and I think that counts for a lot these days really, that somebody they can relate to and also talk to, you know, and that must be good for you to get feedback as well from, from the audience. I, I mean I do like getting feedback, it's nice to know, I like to keep it, the gig fresh, I like to keep changing it, I like to keep improving it, so it's always good to get feedback, you get to learn what, what's working, what's not working. If it's not working, try and fix it. You know. Have you, out of interest, have you heard of these gigs where you play in like uh, intimate surroundings, like a, a large house or something? And yeah, that's I have. quite a circus. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it more is, in America, yeah. isn't it? And it's come over to the UK. And it is. Is that something that's you've ever thought about? I've thought about it and I've decided against it. Is that it. too intimate? Really? <laughs> well, it's mm. it's about something different. Um, I mean, when I go to somebody's community and I play there, it's still a concert and it's about the music it's about the songs I'm singing um, when you're playing in somebody's house it's about something else mm. and the, the focus is shifted immediately and I don't like that mm. <laughs> um, so no it's not also you are maybe at the mercy of a sound system you mightn't like or you, I'm a little uneasy about it. I think you compromised artistically. You are, you? yes, and you are. And what do you do if the bloke in the house, like, you know, I don't know, if his favourite song is, oh, please, and can you do that, you know? Mm. Yes. <sighs> yes, it could be frustrating. Yeah, it? it's yeah. not for me. I think it's great for lots of people, and I'm happy for them, but I don't think it's for me. Now, let's move on to the, the new album, which has come out in, uh, in May this year, and that's called Love Must Be Tough. Now, it's a little different this time, Eleanor, because yeah. you've used a brass section. Yeah. You've used more musicians, and it's yeah. more of a collaborative effort, really. Yeah. Um, did you think the time was right to do that type of album? Yeah, well, I, you know, I have such a dreadful habit of doing this. I go from complete opposite to what I have done on the album before. And the album before, the sixth album out there, uh, it's just me. I play all the instruments. I play, you know, um, produced it. I did, you know, so I did everything. I did the bass playing, everything, percussion. So I think from having done that, I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to have a huge band. I wanted nearly, you know, somebody else to do all the, the arrangements and me just to turn up as the singer. So I'm literally just like a singer. I tell you one thing, singers have it easy. Singers who just sing, I don't know what they do all day. Seriously. Because um, I just basically showed, oh, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, you know, certainly the songs that I'd written myself when the arrangements were done I was kind of putting the spoke in a little bit but uh, I had come across a band called the South King Street Band in Dublin uh, Peter Beckett uh, is the arranger and you know the conductor and I loved them I fell off the chair when I heard them and I thought god they're fantastic wonderfully tight rhythm section great ensemble brass playing um, and some fantastic individual players within the band too so I thought okay let's record the next album with these guys that these are my band um, so that's what we did. And the other big change, sorry, <laughs> is that, you know, I had written, with the exception of one or two songs, three songs, I think, I had written all the songs for the first six albums. It meant I never had a chance to do songs like Mother's Little Helper by the Rolling Stones, like I Knew the Bride When She Used to Rock and Roll by Nick Lowe. Fantastic songs, you know, Lubbock Woman, Terry Allen. Um, 
And I found they were all falling into a kind of a theme of the flawed woman who sleeps with all the wrong men and drinks too much and smokes too much and too many drugs. And, <laughs> and I love singing about flawed people. It's great. It's, it's no fun singing about somebody good and respectable, you know. Um, so I was really... This was appealing to me, this theme. Um, so I decided I would do that. Now, of course, I found that a huge amount of my own songs seem to fit the flawed woman theme. So there's a lot of those songs on there, too. Um, you know, songs I'd written with Dave Rotheray, two, 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 two of those songs, and then one of my own. And then a song I wrote with Johnny Rivers, which ended up in the title track. Um, now, the use of cover versions, then, I mean, that seems to be something of a new departure for you. Yeah. Uh, something that perhaps was started on out there with uh, Mercy, Mercy Me, the Marvin Gaye right. song. Um, is this really an album then you wanted to make for some time of, of these songs that you picked out and selected? And how did you go about selecting the songs anyway? You know, um, you've got like a Sylvester Stewart song on there, haven't That's you? That's right, yeah, sliced on. Yeah. Um, they were just songs I'd always liked and unbeknownst to me I'd selected them before the album kind of came about, you know, that kind of a way. Um, there were songs I'd liked and they all were, you know, were on this slight theme. The other thing that drew them together was that they were all songs about women, but they were written by men and performed by men. But they were about women. So I thought, okay, let's, let's have a woman perform these songs. And some of them change quite radically when you have a woman singing them. Like, if Niccolo is singing about the bride when she used to rock and roll, and if he's intimating a little bit, which I think he does, that there might have been something going on between himself and the bride at some stage before she's walking up the aisle. That's one thing, if Nick Lowe's saying this. If I'm saying that there might be something going on between myself and the bride before she's walking, it means a whole different thing. And it's interesting, and it's quirky, and you listen to the lyrics a bit more intently after that and think, ooh. <laughs> and I love that. Similarly, you know, the, the, the Jaggers Richards track, you know, Mother's Little Helper, Mick Jagger's being a little misogynistic when he's singing about this pill-popping woman who can't quite cope with her kids. But when I'm singing about it, you're not quite sure. Am I being sarcastic? Am I sympathising with this woman? You know, thinking, well, okay, Mick Jagger, you stay at home with three kids then, sunshine. You know. But we're going to hear that track now, Mother's Little Helper. Uh, this was uh, a song, you'll, you'll correct me, Eleanor, on this. Did it appear on Let It Bleed? Uh, aftermath, I think, was it Aftermath? aftermath that's right, which is, to me, it's a bit of an obscure album anyway. It is, yeah. But it, it's not half sound, it's come out really fresh. I mean, that's all credit to you because you've given it that freshness, really. But you can't believe it's like 40 years old. It does seem quite relevant, doesn't it, in terms of the lyrics? Yeah, it is, you know, good songs, they're relevant no matter what. You know, you read Shakespeare and it's as relevant today as it was back then, and it's, you know quite a few centuries ago. It's about human nature, isn't it? Mm. Well, let's hear this now, then. This is Mother's Little Helper. What a drag it is getting old saying uh -oh. that you're still, you're still very young <laughs> and on. yet it seems you've been around for years which says an awful lot about your songwriting and your musicianship really uh, there's a maturity in your work uh, and the quality of your, your song craftsmanship it seems to have got better and better over the years is this something that you're also conscious of 
thanks very much. Um, it's something I work on. <laughs> you know, I'm surprised the amount of musicians and songwriters that, that don't work that hard. I'm amazed at the amount of musicians I know who don't practice every day. You know, I, I practice every day. I really do. I, you know, take up different instruments. I, you know, I, I got a Bowron lesson there recently. You know, I, I keep uh, that end of it going. And uh, with the songwriting, I mean, I try and uh, challenge myself with songs still, and I, I do put in the work. Um, because I love it, I guess it's not, you know, mm. difficult. But uh, yeah, I am disciplined about wanting to improve still. Mm. So, how easy do you find the songwriting process now? Uh, you must get asked this loads and loads of times. But do you start out with like a, the music or the lyrics, and then you work it from there? How, how does it mm. work for you then? The, the actual process of creating the song. Well, every song is different, <laughs> so I, I've probably written them in every different way at this point. Um, as a general rule, I write lyrics and music both at the same time, which is a little bit unusual. Most people would start with the music and then add lyrics, um, although some do it the other way around. Uh, I have done it, lyrics first, I have done it, music first, uh, most of my songs both at the same time. I used to write with an instrument in my hands. I used to write on piano initially. Um, but I found that because I've played piano since I was three, <laughs> I found that I was using the same chord patterns. You know, if, if you've been doing something that long, your fingers, if they're sitting on a B flat chord, they automatically go A flat, E flat, B flat, to a C minor, because that's what your fingers do. Um, they get to know the shapes. And I thought, God, my fingers are telling my brain what to do to write this song. Surely that's not right. So. I then said, okay, I'd write on guitar, but I found then that my limitations as a guitar player were dictating the groove. You know, there's only a certain amount of grooves I was used to playing in. So after that, I changed my songwriting quite a bit, and I just wrote with a blank sheet of paper in front of me. Because then you've really got to think, do I really want to go to an F-sharp minor here? You know, what in the lyric that I'm writing justifies an F-sharp minor at this point in the song? <laughs> um, and I found that my songwriting improved, I think, at that point. Um, and got more, you know, truer. You know, I think I think the songs got better really at that point. Um, now you'll still have ones that just come out of you and you don't think about them at all. Um, you'll still have ones that you know, that, you know. I wrote a song on bass, you know, just recently because I had the bass in my arms and I came up with a song just over a bass riff. So that was one where again the fingers were telling my my brain what chords to go to. But some of it's a feel thing anyway, isn't it? So. And I believe you do a song on this tour just playing Bodrum, isn't it? Is that right? Yes, well, actually, that's the Sly and the Family Stone one. Ah. Um, I said if I was going to uh, do that, I just, again, just to twist it around a bit. You know, you're never going to compete with uh, their groove, their wonderful groove, Larry Graham and bass and all of that. So I thought, I know I'll do it on the bear on. <laughs> well, finally, is there anything else you really want to achieve in music? Oh, yeah, I want to keep <laughs> writing better songs. I mean, that's the main thing, you know. Um, I do have an interest, you know, in uh, soundtracks for films, you know, uh, particularly songs in films. I do have an interest in getting into that a bit more, but uh, still really focused on songwriting. Well, thank you from Get Ready to Rock to Eleanor McAvoy. We're really looking forward to seeing your show later. We're going to finish up with a track off the new album, uh, Love Must Be Tough. It's out uh, at the moment on your own label, this as well, isn't it? Which is great. That's right, well it's yeah. a small independent label, yeah. it's not actually mine, but it's no, Moscow, yeah. That's really good. And uh, we're going to play Roll Out Better Days, so any thoughts behind that particular <laughs> song? Yeah, I was in the studio one day and uh, 
I went to do a take and I was actually doing a session for somebody else and uh, I wasn't getting it and sometimes if a rhythm track isn't that good <laughs> you say okay roll off the treble right up the bass so get rid of the treble right up the bass spin it back again let me try again so in other words you can hear it a bit better to play in time and I thought god wouldn't it be great if you could do that in life you know sorry about that row we just had there just let's rewind I'll do this different you do this different we'll try it again and uh, I also thought it was a good metaphor for life in that you dust yourself off you try it again you don't give up you don't quit you try it again so uh, that became the song roll off the treble right off the bass roll back the last take throw it away and just saying don't give up better days are on the way that's great thank you very much indeed Ellen McAvoy thanks a million Dave your prince you're gonna have to kiss a lot of frogs and before you score your sweetest hit you really have to write a lot of songs before the nights of wine and roses caviar and canapes are days when the light at the end of the tunnel is a freight train coming your way Right of the base, roll back the last take and throw it away. Roll with the punches, right out the waist. All that life will roll out better days. Try to see 